Good morning. I want to encourage you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, today we're going to uh, kind of wind up our study of behind enemy lines, and that's going to be our opening text. And while you're turning there, you may look in the back of the bulletin. There's an outline that will help you to follow along. You've heard the phrase, uh, bite the bullet. Uh, but do you know where it comes from? Bite the bullet. If you're like me, I think of an old Western, you know, where a guy gets shot or some kind of serious injury and his buddy is taking care of him. So he will put a bullet between his teeth and bite down on it hard while he's just grimacing, you know, no anesthesia, uh, trying to, to save his life. But according to one author, that's not the origin of it, meaning just to bite a bullet while you are going through a hard time. This man said in the Civil War, the Union Army would supply soldiers with ammunition and little paper sacks. And so just before a conflict, you would take your muzzle in one hand, that sack in the other, and then you would, with your teeth, tear it open and prepare your gun to be ready to go into battle. So to be able to do that, a soldier had to have two opposing teeth. No way to tear it if you didn't have that. Interesting story comes out of that. In 1863, you Civil War buffs know this, Congress passed an act to allow the Union Army to draft more men into service. There was a man in Ohio who went to his office and was very alarmed to find on his desk his draft notice. He did not want to serve. He did not want to go to war. He knew the rule, so he went home that weekend, and he knocked out all of his front teeth. I know. Imagine his shock when he went back to work on Monday and realized his coworkers played a joke on him. The draft notice was bogus. Isn't that something? Trying to escape conflict might be more costly than engaging. That's all you're going to remember for the sermon right there, isn't it? It's over. Romans 8.37 is a great verse. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In spiritual warfare, we're not only to not evade conflict, we are to engage it. And what the Bible tells us is we're going to win ultimately, and this is something we need to know. Our lesson today is called His Terrible Destiny, because we need to know how the story ends. So in Revelation chapter 12, there's a powerful story about spiritual warfare and how this applies to us. Now, the context of the passage, John is having this vision. A woman is about to give birth. The male child is clearly the Messiah, about to be born. The devil is pictured as a great dragon waiting for that child to be born because he wants to destroy the child and disrupt all of God's plans. But the child is born, rescued into heaven, and the dragon cannot touch him. All of this is a metaphor for the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, let's pick up in verse 7 where war broke out. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. 
And heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And then look at verse 11. We're going to be taking lots of notes from this. And they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. This text tells us two important things about Satan that we need to know. Number one, Satan has lost the war. I hope you know that already, but that's an important fact to know. Satan has lost the war. He tried to defeat Jesus, but he could not. He did not succeed. I've said it before, I'll say it again. When I study spiritual warfare, I come away with more questions than answers. A lot of questions that come from this, especially how Satan works. But notice, according to this passage, a change of address for Satan Stay with me for a moment. Apparently, before this time, Satan had some type of access to God. He was continually assailing the loyalty of those who followed God. And actually, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. We read this when we were reviewing the story of Job in the Old Testament. Satan has a conversation with God. So the question I ask is, why does Satan, why is he permitted to even come into the presence of God? It's because while his motives are malicious, his accusations are just. When he calls out our sins, those are facts. Those are true. But after Jesus came, after Jesus lived a perfect life, after Jesus left the tomb, something changes. Jesus goes back to heaven, and Satan is decisively defeated But he's not executed. He's not put to death. He's lost the war in heaven. So what is left for him to do? What happened to him? What does this text say? Verse 9, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And that's the second thing to note. He lost the war, but second, he's not given up. And he's going after God's people. Can you imagine what the book of Revelation would have meant to the original readers, those that heard, read this message, I'm convinced that the the revelation of John is not for us to understand everything that goes on in the Middle East. I think John was written primarily to the people of his day because people were being killed by the Roman Empire. That was common. People were dying. And those who believed in Jesus needed to know why. So they're reading through this. And John says, Christians, you need to know heaven is rejoicing. Jesus completed it all. For all eternity, he has won the war. But until he returns to take us home, Satan is here, and he's bringing hell with him. It's a terrible situation, but we need to know about it. I don't want to sound like a pessimist. But we can never elect enough good men and women into public office. We can never get rid of all the uh, terrorists and evil on earth. We can never be able to bring peace to all the world. We're not supposed to make earth a perfect paradise. 
The Bible says the devil is the prince of the world, and we see a lot of evil in the world. So John writes, especially to that original audience, don't be discouraged when you see evil. And even for us today, don't be discouraged when, you, when it seems like Satan is winning. So look at three ways they conquered him. This is from verse 11. First, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb. By the blood of the lamb. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And the only way to silence the accusation was to remove the sin from us. That's why Jesus came. That's what happened on the cross. God does not turn a blind eye. God does not just give up his just sense of justice because he wants us saved. He knows a price has to be paid. So he put all of your sins, all of my sins on Jesus and nailed them to the cross. Look at the screen at Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. Kind of a long reading, but, but notice the teaching here about what happens. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. A lot of theology in those verses. At Calvary, the sin problem was finally dealt with. In all the Old Testament, they're looking forward to that. And at Calvary, it came true. The very blood that triumphs over the devil is the same blood that allows us into the presence of heaven. He not only defeated his enemy, Satan, but he allows us to go to God. Look at Hebrews 10, 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... But a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, if I understand my Bible right, there was a time where Satan could enter into the courts of God. But when Jesus went to the cross, Satan was hurled down. He was thrown out of heaven. And now we can enter into the presence of God. Jesus knew that he would have to be lifted up for Satan to be cast down. Remember his words in John 12, 31? Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So they conquered him by the blood of the lamb, number two, by the word of their testimony. There was a time where Satan could do all the talking, accusing us, and we had nothing to say in our defense. But now, he's been silenced because it's been justified, all of our sin debt. And now we, we're the ones who do the talking, 
And by this confession, we're saved. By this confession, we live. Lots of verses that talk about this confession, like Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. But I want to make sure we're clear on this. This is not a one-time statement. This is not something that you just repeat so you can check the box and say, well, I did that. This is your life. This is your lifestyle. It means you're always making it clear to everyone who knows you that Jesus Christ is your Lord, that you are confessing that fact. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then third, they conquered him by the commitment of their lives. Verse 11 says, for they love not their lives even unto death. They didn't shrink back from death. And again, the original audience hearing this goes, I know. I know people who has given their life for the cause. They did not love their lives so much that they were not ready and willing to lay down their life for Jesus. And the fact is, as long as Satan is roaming this earth, there are going to be some who wear the name of Jesus who will lose their life because of that. Listen to this statement. You are not ready to live for Jesus until you're ready to die for him. You're not ready to live for Jesus until you're ready to die for him. I read that statement and I thought, how do you preach that to the American church? Because I'm not sure that we're ready to hear it, can fully absorb it, understand what that means. One author stated, in the past 100 years, more people have died wearing the name of Christ than ever since Pentecost. In the last hundred years. So we can't say it's getting better. In fact, it's getting worse. Chris and Heather Carroll at our Connect a couple of weeks ago shared that fact with us. But it's no surprise we know that. Jesus knew this. Jesus said it would happen. So early Christians were, they had to ask themselves, is this worth dying for? I was young when I was baptized, but I wasn't asked that question. Maybe you weren't asked that question either. Tertullian was an early church leader in the second century. And back then, a big moneymaker, we know this from the New Testament times as well, was making little idols for people to put into their, to their homes. So they would come to the big city, and the silversmiths would make a living by creating these little silver idols so that people could take home. Kind of a souvenir, but also part of that false religion. When some of these silversmiths became Christians in Tertullian's time, some of the Christians then would say, now, we don't worship these idols, but if we quit making these, we'll be out of business. So it's okay, isn't it, that we make them for other people? After all, we must live. And Tertullian answered, must we live? Is it worth dying for? But I thought, is there a verse at all that says that we must stay alive at all costs? I don't think, th I don't think so. 
Now, if we know any verse from the book of Revelation, it's Revelation 2.10. Be faithful unto death, I'll give you a crown of life. And sometimes we'll quote that talking about being faithful all the days of your life. But actually the context, just like the one in chapter 12, is really saying being faithful to the point of death. That you'll give your life. So now let's turn to Revelation 20. And this really affirms his terrible destiny. The devil who deceived him was thrown to the lake of fire and the sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they were tormented day and night forever. Matthew 25, 41 says there's an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. To me, another question pops up. If God had the power to destroy Satan, why didn't he? You ever asked that? You ever wondered that? Why didn't he? Why didn't he just do away with him? Why didn't he do away with him back in the Garden of Eden? Wouldn't that have been better? I don't fully understand why God didn't take care of him fully early on. But God's ways are higher than our ways. One scholar suggested this. Maybe God permits Satan and his demons to be prince of this world to keep us on our toes. We have a choice. And to know that he works with that. Maybe to make us more dependent upon God. Maybe fully alert. You ever eaten seafood at the coast? Yeah, some of you just licked your lips. Mm -hmm. It's better there, isn't it? It's better at the coast. One author stated this. He said, cod that was shipped to the Midwest lost its freshness by the time they got it. Even though the fish were kept alive in the tank, still, it just didn't taste as good as when it was caught fresh and then killed right there and then eaten at the restaurant there at the coast. It negatively impacted the taste, maybe because they surmised they were inactive. They were in a tank, in the water, they were alive, but not the same as just swimming in their natural environment. So the fishermen learned to put a catfish in the tank. They think of the catfish as a predator. And so it kept them stirring and moving, and it helped especially. So maybe God allows Satan to exist as our predator to avoid complacency. You remember 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But again, back to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, give a dire warning here that those who follow Satan will be punished along with him. Hell is a destiny, not only for Satan and his angels, but for all people who reject God. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible teaches that when you trust 
Jesus' death on the cross, that your sins were nailed on the cross, and then you respond in obedience to him, your sin is washed away by the blood of Jesus. That's what baptism represents. You're saved by God's grace. Your name is recorded in the book of life. And those names that are not in the book of life will be judged according to what's written in the book of deeds. That great white throne of judgment seems to be the court where God opens these books and the unbelievers are judged according to what they had done. This book of deeds will reveal that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even the good things we do that we think might be righteous are seen, as Isaiah said, as filthy rags. When our motives and thoughts are revealed, we stand guilty before a holy God. All of us probably know John 3, 16, but are you familiar with John 3, 36? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We don't talk much about the wrath of God, but we need to understand the wrath of God. On judgment day, we're either going to be under God's grace or under God's wrath. Our names are written in the book of life or they're not. You ever checked into a a motel late at night? You're tired and there's a line there, maybe the person in front of you, and the clerk says, I'm sorry, we're booked. There's no more rooms. I'm sorry. In fact, word, word on the street is all the hotels in town are booked. And then you step up and you say your name and say, I believe I have a reservation. And they look in the computer screen and you're just hoping that it's going to work. And sure enough, they say, oh, yep, here it is. Got your room, two queen beds, non-smoking. You're so thankful that your name was in that computer because you don't have to go drive miles and miles to find a hotel or have a sleep in your car that night. When you stand before God, here's a fact. You either have reservations in the Father's house or you don't. It's that simple. God's not trying to surprise anyone. Your name is either written in the Lamb's book of life or it's not. And if it's not, then you're destined to spend eternity in hell. There's no middle ground. Look at verse 15 of Revelation 20. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown to the lake of fire. Now, two reasons I can think of why God would ordain a place like hell. Again, we need to understand this. Maybe we don't talk about it as much as we should. But the first reason is to administer justice. Think about it like this. Sometimes we think about justice as a bad way, but imagine a father taking his three-year-old daughter to a merry-go-round. And so he puts her on, and he's standing back with all the other parents and adults watching, and his little girl is going around and around, and she's having a wonderful time. But when it stops, she's on the other side. And so he panics for a moment because he wants to make sure that that she sees him. And so he runs around to the other side just in time to see another man has grabbed her, cupping his hand over her face as she's screaming, and is running away. Now, if that father just said, hmm, and walked away, what would you think of him? Doesn't deserve to be a father. There's no way. Because a 
good father is going to run after that guy, chase him down, run faster than he ever has. And when he finds him, when he grabs him, it's not going to be pretty because he's going to execute justice right there. That's what a father does. And we understand that. Isaiah 5, 16, God is a God of justice. He does not allow disobedience to go unpunished. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Hell is punishment because it's what Satan deserves. Now, cartoonists have a fun time depicting Satan having a good time in hell. Have you noticed this? They do it all the time. He's got this devious grin. He's got the little pitchfork. You know, it's just all the stereotypical things we think of, trying to force people to suffer. But the Bible makes it clear, no one is going to suffer more than Satan. So don't think of him as being king of that domain, and he's happy that others go. He's going to be suffering. He deserves it. And those who reject the truth of God, those who are deceived by his lies, they're also going to receive justice. 2 Corinthians 5.10, look at the promise. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. We don't talk about it a lot, but the Bible teaches us that not all in hell are going to receive the same sentence, that there's going to be some type of degree of punishment. That's why there's the book of deeds. That's not my speculation. That's what Jesus said. In Matthew 10, I mean, Matthew 11, he was speaking to those in Judea who had rejected him. He said, but I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. God understands. God is a perfect judge, and the punishment will fit the crime. God's never too harsh. God's never too lenient. His verdicts are fair. No one can complain because they will receive a just sentence. Look at Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. We need to know that. Well, here's the second reason I believe God ordained hell, and that's to motivate people to repentance. The Bible says repeatedly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When I was on a mission trip, I got tickled uh, in Central America when they described um, um, oh, speed bumps. They described speed bumps as dead policemen. Have you heard that? Dead policemen. I don't know what they make their speed bumps out of. But their idea that it's inanimate, you know, it's just an object, but it works even better than a policeman. And it does, doesn't it? I mean, you think about it. You, you go over a speed bump and you're not ready for it. I mean, it just jars your jaws. I mean, everybody in the car, their head hits the ceiling. It can wreak havoc on your car. And the next, next one you see, you're slowing down. It works. Because you don't want to hit your head again. You don't want to mess up your car. So that speed bump is a good warning to cause you to change your behavior. But even those who love children, even those who have children... You might see a children at play sign posted in the yard. Doesn't always motivate us to slow down, does it? Not like a speed bump will. I mean, that's like a, a nice warning, but it's not going to affect me. 
I mean, none of us want to have the consequence of, of striking a child and injuring them or killing them. We don't want that kind of consequence. But sometimes even that warning on the side of the road is not enough. Sometimes we think maybe we shouldn't talk about hell and try to scare people. And I think sometimes that can not always go well. But then when I read Jesus and what he said, he said more about the devastation of hell than he ever did about all the blessings of heaven. Look at Matthew 5, 20. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members and your whole body to go to hell. Luke 16, 24. To that self-indulgent man who was in hell pleading, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. The book of Romans opens by describing the world in a downward moral spiral and what all happens there. Then it explains why there's such unrestrained corruption. This one phrase, chapter 3, verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Have you seen the commercial with Ron Reagan promoting an atheist group? Reagan's the 61-year-old son of the late President Ronald Reagan. And he makes a very provocative plug in the commercial. He said rather boldly, I'm not afraid of burning in hell. Said that. I read at the annual X-rated movie awards banquet a few years back. A presenter laughed and said to the audience of the whole pornography industry, this is a group of people who are going to hell but we're having fun. I hope they don't go to hell. Jesus wants them saved. I want them saved. I don't wish hell for anyone. But when there's no respect for God, there's no moral restraint on behavior. Anything goes. And people will commit all kinds of sins without a bit of conscience. That's what happens when there's no fear of God Contrast that to Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. See, I think we've got to be careful when we make these euphemisms and kind of soften the reality of hell. I mean, nobody wants to be labeled hellfire and brimstone as a person, as a preacher. That's not the kind of reputation we want. It makes people uncomfortable. But I'm not sure that we're actually speaking Bible when... We kind of moderate the language, as one author said, and, and talk about a Christless eternity or even being separated from God forever. That doesn't motivate some people because they don't want to be with God anyway. So why would they want to be with God in eternity? The Bible uses more graphic words available in the human language to des describe hell, outer darkness, lake of fire, second death, talks about the disorientation, the agonizing pain, desperate loneliness. That is what makes the gospel good news. That's why it's so important. Matthew, Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, Jesus said, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So let me end with a challenge. I don't want you to become discouraged. Stay on the winning side. Stay on the winning side. The Bible tells us who's going to win. God's going to win. And God wants you on his side. During World War II, 
the 101st Airborne Division, had a reputation of being just the fiercest, toughest fighting unit. In the critical battle of the bulge, they were given the seemingly impossible assignment of preventing the Germans from overtaking the key Belgian city of Bastogne. The odds were overwhelmingly against them. They learned they were surrounded by the Germans. One soldier remarked, they've got us surrounded, the poor, and I'm going to insert souls. Asked by the radio to describe the situation, another soldier replied, visualize the hole in the donut, that's us. It looked hopeless. And then the Germans sent a very humiliating message, arrogant ultimatum, surrender or be annihilated in two hours. U.S. General McAuliffe immediately sent back the now famous one-word answer, nuts. And all the American soldiers cheered. Now, the German officer receiving the message did not understand what the word nuts meant. Colonel Harper was the one delivering the reply. He quickly explained, and I quote, Sir, it means go to hell. That's what nuts means. The Germans attacked, and the result was some of the most horrible fighting in the whole war. It was not easy. It was bitter cold. Food became scarce. Ammunition was low. Hospitals were packed. There was no way out of the donut. All they could do was fight. But what kept them fighting was the news. The 4th Armored Division was on its way. So they held their ground. And then on December the 26th, 1944, that rumble of tank fire was heard as that division approached. And a few days later, the Germans were defeated. A few months later, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander, awarded the presidential citation to the, hero, the heroes of Bastogne. The whole division. It's the first time that award was ever given to the whole group in action. I share that because sometimes it seems like Satan has us defeated. You turn on the news, you open your eyes, and he's everywhere. And it seems like he's winning. I mean, immorality and entertainment, anti-Christian bias in the media, liberalism and education, corruption in business, corruption in government. Pornography is everywhere. Sickness dysfunction in family, hypocrisy in the church. People in the church sometimes look just like the world. And Satan would convince us, give up. It's a lost cause. But maybe we need to say to him, nuts. Because that's exactly where he's going. But remember, what the Bible tells us, his time is short. It says his wrath is great. So don't give up. Three verses. I put these on the, on the bottom of your outline. They're on the screen as well. Jesus is coming, and we will triumph. 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. 1 John 4, 4, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
And in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Stay on the winning side. This morning, if we can pray for you, if you're in that struggle and you just need somebody to come alongside to know you're not alone, you're not fighting the war by yourself, or maybe for you it's the decision to join ranks, to get on the right side, to accept the good news of Jesus, to confess you believe that he make you the new creation. We have the water ready for your baptism. Once you come as we stand and sing to encourage.